John chapter 7, 14 to 24, judge with righteous judgment. John 7, 14. But when it was now the midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began to teach. The Jews, therefore, were marveling, saying, How has this man become learned, having never been educated? Jesus, therefore, answered them and said, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If any man is willing to do his will, he shall know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak from my own uh, self. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true, and there is no unrighteousness in him. Did not Moses give you the law, and yet none of you carries out the law? Why do you seek to kill me? The multitude answered, You have a demon. Who seeks to kill you? Jesus answered and said to them, I did one deed, and you all marvel. On this account, Moses has given you circumcision, not because it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And on the Sabbath, you circumcise a man. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath, that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because I made an entire man well on the Sabbath? Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray that you will sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. Teach us, Lord, what it means to correctly understand, correctly discern, to correctly judge our circumstances. And may it be that we not have such blindness in our minds, such blindness in our hearts, that we are unable to see what is clearly set before us. Grant to us, Lord, wisdom, knowledge, understanding, insight, discernment, all that we need to please you and to be sanctified in the truth. We pray again that your spirit, the spirit of truth, will sanctify us in the truth. In Christ, amen. You're not supposed to judge. You're being judgmental. Why is it that we hear words like this? Do not judge. They even quote the Bible from Matthew 7. Why is it that we hear words like this from people? We hear words like this because when we speak the truth, there will be an immediate response, a knee-jerk reaction that seeks to shut down the conversation and silence those who speak the truth. This is what often happens when the truth of God's Word is communicated those who don't like it will retaliate and seek ways to silence us and then accuse us of being judgmental and judging them when they themselves are the biggest judges in the whole world. They are the ones who lash out and say all kinds of nasty and harsh things against those against whom um, they, they have disagreements or with whom they have disagreements. This is what people do. Here in our passage, Christ our Lord, He tells us and teaches us to judge with righteous judgment. There are several truths in this passage, but if we were to summarize them, perhaps we could summarize them by this one statement of Christ in verse 24. Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. 
from the beginning of this paragraph in verse 14 till the end, this is, I think, the central theme of what Christ is communicating to them. And this is something that is necessary for all hearers of the truth to understand. They need to understand that they don't have the ability to judge correctly because they are blind. They are blinded by their love of sin. They justify their sin and their sin blinds them to the truth. Therefore, they are unable to judge or to discern, to distinguish correctly. They distinguish or judge according to appearance. But when we have the spirit of Christ within us, the spirit of discernment within us, who is from Christ, then we will have the ability to judge with righteous judgment. That's what is necessary. And that's what we will learn from this passage. Verse 14. But when it was now the midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began to teach. We know that they are at the Feast of Booths. Verse 2, John 7 verse 2 says they are at the Feast of Booths. Jesus told his brothers that he would go up eventually, but not with them. He does go up in verse 14. At the Feast of Booths, there would be numerous people there. A lot of people at this feast in Jerusalem. As we see from verse 20, there is a crowd or a multitude there to celebrate the feast. Now, this feast was intended to celebrate or to commemorate the people of Israel under Moses' leadership in the wilderness for 40 years, that they were to live in booths, temporary shelters, tents in the wilderness annually as a national celebration to the Lord, depending on God for their provisions and anticipating their permanent home. Initially, that permanent home was the land of Canaan, but ultimately the permanent home was heaven itself. The heavenly Jerusalem, the heavenly Zion, this is what they were to anticipate. So the Feast of Booths was not merely to look back at what they experienced as a nation in the wilderness under Moses, but it was also anticipatory, looking forward to the hope of their permanent heavenly Jerusalem Therefore, it had a spiritual connection. It had an eternal and spiritual connection, which they should have understood. Their teachers, their elders, their priests, their prophets, whoever was in leadership was supposed to teach them those things. Even if they taught them faithfully, very few of them understood and believed in the spiritual, in the heavenly. This becomes evident with this interchange and this dialogue between Jesus and the Jews. Jesus goes up into the temple, verse 14, to teach. This is what he was all about. He would preach and teach. He would also perform good works. He would also live a godly life. But in terms of his positive, constructive, active ministry, what was it? It was a preaching and teaching ministry. It was not a ministry of building friendships. It was not a ministry of doing social work. That's not what Jesus went about doing. His ministry was preaching and teaching. And then as the needs arose, then he would help those in need. But actively and proactively, he went about preaching and teaching. This is quite evident in even a casual reading of the synoptics and John. 
Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This is also quite evident in understanding the ministry of the apostles in the book of Acts. Wherever Peter and John, wherever Paul went, they went preaching and teaching. That was their primary focus. That was their emphasis. Proactively, they were dispensing um, and broadcasting the word of God. That's what they were doing. Jesus does the same. Verse 15. The Jews, therefore, were marveling, saying, How has this man become learned, having never been educated? How is he so learned, so knowledgeable, so brilliant, so understanding of the things of God, when they don't, he doesn't even have an education? He doesn't even know the things that the religious authorities, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the priests, that they understand, the scribes and the Herodians and others who were leaders among the people, they had great knowledge. They went through the formal training. How is it that Jesus knows so much without the formal training? This enigma that perplexed them also came up in reference to the apostles Peter and John. Acts chapter 4, verse 13. Now, as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were marveling and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. Jesus himself was taught by the Father. Jesus himself, as a man, he grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and men, Luke 2.52. Jesus grew to understand and to excel all of his contemporaries, even those who had formal education, who went through the schools, who went through all of the rigors of the formal education of the Jews in the scriptures to be able to teach the people. Jesus was not a part of the Sanhedrin the body of elders who knew the scriptures the best and were consulted to teach the people in the synagogues and in the temple. Jesus was not a part of that um, formal system or that guild. He was not a part of it. He was self-taught in terms of human experiences. He was self-taught, obviously taught by the Father and the Spirit, but self-taught. The same with Peter and John to the extent that they also did not go to the schools, the schools of the rabbis. They did not have a famous teacher or a famous professor who tutored them in the ways that they should go and, and the things that they should know of the scriptures. They did not have it either. Jesus didn't. Peter and John didn't. The apostles didn't. In fact, many of them, most of the, the apostles came from what we would call blue-collar jobs, from what we would call manual labor. They were the ones who worked with their hands. That's the kind of occupations that they had. They did not have what we call today white-collar jobs. They were not academics. They were not professors. They weren't like that. They were uneducated. Well, what does this cause people to do? It causes them to stumble. Verse 15 how has this man become learned, having never been educated? We know from how this conversation, this dialogue proceeds, that they were offended at that. 
How could this nobody, no-namer, from a no-name town in the northern region where there aren't very many Jews compared to the southern region, where the, in the north they have many Gentiles living there, some idolatry is, living there, is there, and they even raise pigs over there, herds of pigs in the north, which we would never do in Jerusalem, right? They do those kinds of things. How is it that he could know so much? And why is it that we should follow him since he does not have the famous tutor, the famous professor who taught him? Since he did not go to the famous schools and universities of our day. Since he did not graduate with a PhD from a a reputable institution. Why is it that anybody listens to him? Do you see how proud and... uh, arrogant human nature rises to the surface like that? It rises to the surface because these people, just as, as in our day, people are more uh, allured, they are more enamored by those kinds of things rather than whether somebody is telling them the truth of God, preaching and teaching the truth of God. That's what causes them to pay attention if he's got a lot of money, if he draws a uh, a big crowd, if he is well-spoken, if he's articulate and can persuade people and woo people with his stories and his anecdotes and his humor, right? This is what attracts people. But that's not the thing that should attract us. Jesus says in verse 16, Jesus answers them. He confronts their unbelief, he confronts their offense. He says in 16, Jesus therefore answered them and said, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. I'm not teaching something originating from within me. I am teaching something that has come from the Father, him who sent me. And of course, he is speaking in in these terms We know, and they know, he's claiming to be sent from God and that it is God who taught him. God who sent him and God who taught him. So the the um, origination of his teaching is coming from God the Father. That's what he is asserting. Now when he asserts this, he is making a big claim. He's making a big claim that what he's saying is coming from God. But it's true. It is true. In the same way, when we are teaching others, when we say to others, this is what the gospel is, that is what the gospel is not. What you have been taught all all your life is false and foolish, and it will not lead to heaven. It will lead to perdition, to the lake of fire. And if we say something like that, it's going to offend people. It will always offend people unless God has prepared their heart at the moment you actually say it. It's going to offend them. They're going to not want to hear it. But what do we need to say as Christ did? My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. We need to tell them, listen, I'm telling you right here from the Bible. Let's read it together. Will you go and check this passage of the Bible? Go read it and find out for yourself. Can we read the Bible together? Can we learn together from the Bible? The Bible is God's word. My teaching is not mine. It's from the Holy Bible. 
So let's read the Bible. And then your dispute, your contention is not really with me, friend. Your contention is really with God. If you don't want to believe it, if you don't want to obey it, if you don't want to give up your sin, don't pick a fight with me. Your enemy is God, not me. So don't lash out against me. You need to take it up between you and God privately. Verse 17. If any man is willing to do his will, he shall know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak from myself. He makes this curious statement. If any man is willing to do his will, he shall know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak from myself. He puts forth a challenge for the people to actually do the will of God, to have, after they have done it, that experience, that knowledge, that taste of doing the right thing and knowing that it is truly from God, which is something that happens quite often. When we are doubting the will of God, when we have doubt on what God's will is, but then someone challenges us to do God's will. After we do God's will, we experience the results of doing God's will, and then we have our eyes open. We say, you know, that was the right thing to do. Why didn't I believe it when he told me? Why didn't I believe it when I read it in the Bible? Why didn't I do it the first time? Because now I realize that what God says is true. I see what it has done to me in my mind, in my heart. I see what it has done to my relationships. I understand the peace that that I have. I understand this knowledge, this experiential knowledge of doing God's will and benefiting from it. Jesus challenges them to do it. Because up to this point, they want nothing to do with what Christ says. They want nothing to do with what he says They just want to do their own will. And they think, they falsely conclude because they're not practicing true judgment. They judge Christ to be worthless and and to be someone who is not speaking God's word. When actually they should do the opposite. They should realize he is speaking God's word. Verse 18, another reason they should know he's speaking God's word He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory. But he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true and there is no unrighteousness in him. If we speak from ourself, we're seeking our own glory. Correct? If we say something that's not coming from the word of God, then it's coming from us or somebody else that's human just like us or even from Satan. It's coming from another source other than God. And once it comes from another source other than God, the one who's speaking of his own authority, he is seeking his own glory. If we speak of our own initiative, if we seek to, to, or if we speak something from ourselves and we're not confirming whether it's in the Bible, whether it's in Scripture, then we're seeking our own glory. That's what Jesus says here. 
On the other hand, if we are seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true and there is no unrighteousness in him. If we're seeking the glory of God the Father, then we know what we're saying is true. We know what we are saying is righteous, not unrighteous. We should have, can have, could have confidence in what we say is true if we know that the source of it is true. So, whenever we have a dilemma, whenever we have uncertainties, hardships, whenever we have troubles in our life and we don't know what to do, once we see what God's Word tells us what to do, then we can first practice, believe it and practice it ourselves and teach others to do the same. And that will give us the confidence that what we're telling them is true, what we're telling them is righteous, and what we're telling them is not seeking our own glory, but seeking the glory of God Himself. This is how a true teacher teaches in contrast to a false teacher. A true teacher has confidence in God's word that it's true, that it's righteous, and that he's seeking God's glory, not himself, not his own glory. If he were seeking his own glory, he would mitigate and he would compromise on God's word. If he were seeking his own glory. Christ says he doesn't do that. And he's showing us we should not do that either. We should completely conform ourselves to the word of God. Verse 19. Then in verse 19, Christ throws it back on them. Christ accuses them of disobeying Moses, the law of Moses. Firstly, in his answer, he correctly explains who he is and where he is gaining this authority and teaching. Then he corrects them by confronting their own sin. Their own sin. If they had understood verse 19 correctly, or what he says correctly, then they would not have said, how has this man become learned having never been educated? In opposition to Christ, they said that. Verse 19, Christ accuses them. Did not Moses give you the law, and yet none of you carries out the law? Why do you seek to kill me? Did not Moses give you the law? Yes, that's indisputable. Everybody knows that. Moses gave them the law. The law of Moses, the books of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy were delivered by Moses to the people from Mount Sinai in the hands of Moses then to the people. And in the tabernacle too is where God in Christ communicated to the people through Moses. So Moses gave the law to them. If the law is in their hands... If they have access to the law in their synagogues, if the law is read to the people each week on the Sabbath day in the synagogue, why is it that they don't believe it? And why is it that they don't obey it? Because he says here, none of you carries out the law. 
None of you obeys the law. None of you executes the law. Which shows that they lacked faith. Remember, faith without works is dead. So if they profess faith, but they don't actually do it, then they're disobeying what they heard. They don't carry it out. He does not mean they don't carry it out perfectly necessarily, because nobody does carry it out perfectly. Even we do not after our conversion. After our conversion, we seek to carry it out. We have the ability to carry it out in amazing and miraculous ways that we did not have before our conversion, but we still fail to carry it out perfectly. Nobody does perfectly. So he tells them and he accuses them of not carrying it out. In their case, however, he's meaning it as an unbeliever. They are unbelievers. They are unbelievers who do not carry out the law. They don't have a desire to do it. They are so blinded by so many of the truths of the, of the law. They don't have true faith. If they had true faith, then they would believe in Christ. Remember, that's what he said earlier in John chapter 5. John 5, 45, evidence that they don't believe. John 5, 45, do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Moses and Christ are in harmony. Moses and Christ agree with each other. If they believed Moses' words, they would indeed believe in Christ. Since they don't believe in Moses, they don't carry out the law. If they carried out the law, they would have had faith in Christ and they would have obeyed Christ. He reminds them of that fact that they don't carry it out. They have access, but they don't have obedience. Verse 19, Christ says, Moreover, why do you seek to kill me? They don't mention killing him in this passage. They don't mention it. But he knows, based on their motives, based on their words, based on what has happened previously, which we shall see in a moment, and even later, that they do intend to kill him. He knows that. We also know from human nature that those who hate God, hate the holiness of God, hate the word of God, they will eventually, if they are in the presence of the messenger of truth, anyone who's preaching and teaching the gospel, if they are in the, their presence long enough and there isn't a separation between the two parties, that there will be conflict, there will be verbal conflict and even physical conflict in that kind of scenario. It will always happen. It happened to Christ. It happened to the apostles. It happened to Stephen, who was not an apostle. It will happen to all of us. This is the nature of the truth opposing falsehood. Falsehood will eventually rise up first verbally and then violently against those who speak the truth. 
It's inevitable. Inevitable. Why do you seek to kill me? Now, in verse 20, they say, You have a demon. Who seeks to kill you? You have a demon. Who seeks to kill you? They accuse Christ of being demon-possessed. Because he said something that they deny. They actually deny who seeks to kill you. They don't say it here that they're going to kill him. But Jesus knows they're going to kill him or want to kill him. And because Jesus called out their sin, their ultimate sin against him, why do you seek to kill me? Instead of admitting their sin, instead of saying, you're right, they say, you have a demon. So instead of admitting the truth of what was really maliciously in their heart, what their intentions actually were, they don't admit that, they don't confess it and repent of it. Instead, they throw uh, an accusation back on Christ. You are demon-possessed. Otherwise, there would be no way that you would say such an absurd thing. You're slandering us. You're not telling us the truth. You're slandering us that we would seek to kill you. You see what happens in conflict? When the truth is spoken, those who hate it lash out against the speaker of truth, and then it it gets thrown into a big mess. There's a big mess that transpires, verbal war going back and forth. That's what they do. Christ isn't doing it. That's what they're doing to him. Now, did Christ say this wrongly or rightfully? Did he say it rightly or wrongly here? That they seek to kill him. Remember in verse, verses 22 to 23, he says, I made an entire man well on the Sabbath. When did he do that? John chapter 5. John chapter 5, verses 1 to 18. In John 5, 1 to 18, he made a man well on the Sabbath day. Then what did they want to do to him because he did that? Verse 18, for this cause, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. To kill him, it says that. To kill him because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. They were indeed wanting to kill him. They couldn't do it at that time, but they still had that intention in their heart. They wanted to kill him. John chapter 7, evidence that they wanted to kill him, though they deny it. 7.30, John 7 verse 30. They were seeking therefore to seize him, to seize him, to arrest him. And no man laid his hand on him because his hour had not yet come. John chapter 7, verse 44. 744. And some of them wanted to seize him, but no one laid hands on him. They wanted to seize him or grab him, arrest him, in order to kill him. John chapter 8. John 8, 59. 8.59, therefore they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. 
That's on a later occasion. John chapter 10. John 10. Christ says that He and the Father are one in John chapter 10. And after Jesus says that, John 10, 31. The Jews took up stones again to stone Him. 10, 31. They took up stones again to stone Him. And 10, 39. Therefore, they were seeking again to seize Him but he eluded their grasp. They were constantly trying to seize him, arrest him, in order to put him to death. Jesus spoke the truth, and they lied when Jesus told them what was truly in their heart. They lied to such an extent that they blasphemed Christ, saying he was demon-possessed. Well, our Lord, he continues, verse 21. He continues to show them that they don't have discernment. They don't have judgment. They are so blinded by their sin, their love of sin, that they are unable to see and hear correctly. And he illustrates in verses 22, uh, 21 to 23. He illustrates in verse 21. Jesus answered and said to them, I did one deed... And you all marvel. On this account, Moses has given you circumcision, not because it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And on the Sabbath, you circumcise a man. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath, that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me? Because I made an entire man well on the Sabbath? It was one deed and one deed alone. From John chapter 5, when Jesus healed a man on the Sabbath, you were amazed, you were marveling. You said, this has never been done. That was your initial reaction to it, but you did not proceed with that and glorify God and believe in me. Instead, you wanted to kill me. Moses illustrates. Moses who instituted, or Moses who, who confirmed affirmed and confirmed this institution or ritual of circumcision, he did so, and they practice it, and they even practice it on the Sabbath day, which was right. They knew that Moses said, circumcise your male offspring on the eighth day after his birth. Circumcise your male offspring on the eighth day after their birth. Well, what if... The eighth day comes on the Sabbath day. Well, they knew that they were supposed to circumcise their son on the eighth day, even if it fell on the Sabbath day. Because the Sabbath is to be observed, and there are two exceptions to, quote-unquote, breaking the Sabbath. Breaking the Sabbath is permitted And one is innocent, not guilty of sin, for works of necessity and mercy, as the Protestant reformers phrased it. Works of necessity and mercy. For those two exceptions, the Sabbath may be broken and you are innocent, you're not guilty of sin. Works of necessity and mercy. Well, a necessity would obviously be if God said circumcise the son on the eighth day and he expects you to do it on the eighth day, even if it falls on the Sabbath day, then you're not breaking it 
in terms of being breaking it and being guilty of it. You break it and you're still innocent because God expects you to do it. It's a work of necessity. The work of mercy in Jesus' case here was healing a man on the Sabbath day, which they should have understood also. They should not have been angry uh, with murderous anger against Christ because he did so. This was a man who had been in his illness, in his, uh, in his handicap for 38 years. 38 years. So why are you upset that I healed him on the Sabbath day is the point. They should know that. They should have had discernment, judgment, righteous judgment to know the difference because they even practice the difference. Here, they don't deny that they practice this. That's why Jesus pointed it out. They were silenced by this illustration. They knew that they were supposed to circumcise their male offspring on the eighth day, even if it were a Sabbath day, and Moses and the fathers before that taught them to do it. So there was no guilt in doing so. Keep your place here in John 7. Let's notice a couple of other places where this is, in fact, the case, where they know and understand works of necessity and mercy. Though the Bible may not say it in those ways, the Bible does describe those truths. The first example is Luke, Luke 13. Luke 13, we begin at verse 14. 13, 14. And the synagogue official, indignant that because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, began saying to the multitude in response, there are six days in which work should be done. Therefore, come during them and get healed, and not on the Sabbath day. But the Lord answered him and said, You hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the stall and lead him away to water him? And this woman, a daughter of Abraham as she is, whom Satan has bound for 18 long years, should she not have been released from this bond on the Sabbath day? And as he said this, all his opponents were being humiliated. And the entire multitude was rejoicing over all the glorious things being done by him. The synagogue official, he is upset, indignant that Jesus did it on the Sabbath. And he's trying to persuade the crowds against Christ. He's trying to persuade them against him. Against Christ. Verse 15. Christ, however, tells the synagogue official and those who agree with him, you hypocrites. And he illustrates from the fact that on the Sabbath day, they water their oxen and their donkeys. Because animals need to drink during the day, even on the Sabbath day. Therefore, they know that a provision for the Sabbath day is to feed or to water your own ox and donkey. So go ahead and do it. And Moses did not mean to avoid doing that. God did not mean that. They know it and they practice it. Therefore, why is it incredulous that I, I Christ, have healed 
a daughter of Abraham, which means she has faith like Abraham, that she had her illness for 18 long years. She was bound by Satan. Satan caused this severe illness to her for 18 long years. Now you're upset at me because I healed on the Sabbath? Don't you realize how hypocritical you are? Turn again for an example in chapter 14, Luke 14. Luke 14. Here too we'll see works of necessity and mercy as exceptions for the Sabbath. Luke 14, verse 1. And it came about when he went into the house of one of the leaders of the Pharisees on the Sabbath to eat bread that they were watching him closely. And there in front of him was a certain man suffering from dropsy. And Jesus answered and spoke to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they kept silent. And he took hold of him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, Which one of you shall have a son or an ox fall into a well and will not immediately pull him out on a Sabbath day? And they could make no reply to this. No reply. Twice they kept quiet. First with Jesus' question in verse 3, 3 to 4, he asked and they kept quiet. And then he asked another question in verse 5 and they keep quiet again. Why? They were being humiliated. They knew they were wrong. And they knew Christ was correct. That works of necessity and mercy are permitted. Why then do you not have discernment? Why then do you not have judgment, righteous judgment, to see clearly what the issues are and then act accordingly? And then because you don't do that, you falsely accuse the one who is speaking and acting correctly. John 7, 24. The lesson, the central truth here is in John 7, 24. Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. Firstly, he tells them not to judge according to appearance. Don't judge according to the way things seem to be, but the way things are actually in the situation. Not how it seems, not how it appears, but what actually or factually is happening. That's the way we must judge. Now, how is it that we might judge according to appearance? Or why would people do it? What does it look like? Judging according to appearance. One way people might judge according to appearance might be they don't want to be seen in the eyes of others in the wrong light. In the eyes of others, they don't want to be seen in the wrong light. Because if they are seen in the wrong light by others, then that will mean something negative for them. Example, John 9. John chapter 9. There was a man born blind. From birth, he was blind. In his adulthood, Christ healed him. Christ healed him. Then the Pharisees, the Jews, the multitudes among them, they went to the parents to ask, what actually happened to him? What happened to him, the parents? 
They don't go to the man. Well, they do go to the man, but they also go to the parents. But they're trying to get the parents to say something. Notice. Uh, verse 18, 9-18. The Jews therefore did not believe it of him, the healed man, that he had been blind and had received sight, until they called the parents of the very one who had received his sight, and questioned them, saying, Is this your son, who you say was born blind? Then how does he now see? His parents answered them and said, We know that this is our son, and that he was born blind, but how he now sees, we do not know. Or who opened his eyes, we do not know. Ask him. He is of age. He shall speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess him to be Christ, he should be put out of the synagogue. The parents were afraid to say that Christ did in fact heal him because they were afraid that they would be pushed out, put out of the synagogue. They could not go to the local place of worship anymore and they could not be with their friends and family anymore in that local place of worship. They didn't want that to happen. They didn't want to be humiliated in the eyes of others. John chapter 12 John 12, verse 42. John 12, 42. Nevertheless, many even of the rulers believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. They loved the approval or glory, praise of men, rather than the approval or praise of God. That's why they did not confess Jesus to be Christ. They didn't want that. Because they didn't want enemies from their friends and family. That's why they did that. They would not openly do so. So, these would be people who judge the situation according to the appearance. That is, the way they perceive things and the way others perceive them, judging by appearance. There is another way that we might judge by appearance, and that is from Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. This is the place that is often misquoted misinterpreted. Matthew chapter 7. 7 and verse 1. Do not judge lest you be judged yourselves. For in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it shall be measured to you. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye? And behold, the log is in your own eye. You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly enough to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give what is holy to dogs, and do not throw your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet, and turn and tear you to pieces. The misquoted part is verse 1. Do not judge. 
Do not judge. That's what people say. But that's not what Christ meant. They didn't, he didn't mean it the way that our contemporaries commonly mean it. That you have no basis to correct me. You have no basis to confront me. You have no basis to tell me what you think is in the Bible, what you think is true. You have no grounds to tell me whatsoever. Is that what Jesus meant here? No. The key is in verses 5 and 6. The key is in verses 5 and 6. Of course, in verses 2 to 4, he warns us to make sure we repent of our sins first and then help somebody else. So that is the precursor. First, we must repent of our sins and then help somebody else repent of his sins. Then we have moral grounds. We have moral authority to help somebody else. Correct? Um, if, If we are slanderers, First, cut it out ourselves and then help others to quit slandering. If we are uh, gluttons and drunkards, first we should give up our gluttony and drunkenness and then go and help somebody else do it, right? First, take what's lacking in ourselves and correct it and then go and help somebody else do the same. Or meet up with him and say, let's do it together. I know I have this sin, you have the sin, let's work on it together. That's the way it should be. That's why he said in verse 5, you hypocrite. That's the problem in this passage. You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly enough to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Correct the sin in your life and then go and help somebody else. That's the sense in which he said, do not judge. Don't judge as a hypocrite. Don't judge like that. But the fact that in this very passage that Jesus expected us to judge others is in verse 6. Also, do not give what is holy to dogs and do not throw your pearls before swine. The fact that he told us not to do this means we need to make a judgment, a discerning decision, who is a dog and who is a hog before we stop helping him or teaching him the truth. When someone manifests that he is actually a ravenous dog and a wild hog, before he manifests that or when he manifests that, that's when we have to stop casting our pearls and giving them what's holy. We have to stop doing that. Instead of doing that, stop doing it. Does that not then take judgment to know who is a sheep and who is a goat. At times we need to know who is demonstrating, who is showing his true colors, and then we have to act accordingly. We have to do that. That requires judgment. John seven twenty four. The second part of John seven twenty four, But judge... With righteous judgment. Judge with righteous judgment. This is stated not as a wish, but a command. This is stated not as an indicative, but an imperative. Judge with righteous judgment. Which means Jesus expects us to obey this because he's commanding it. It's an imperative. Judge. 
But when you do it, do it with righteous judgment. The fact that we are supposed to do it is clearly evidenced in the book of John. The way Christ does, the way John the Apostle does, the way the Apostles do in the book of John. The fact that they are supposed to do it is illustrated not only in the book of John, but throughout Scripture. There are many, many people throughout Scripture practicing righteous judgment, obeying righteous judgment. They're doing it. The fact that they're doing it throughout Scripture shows that there is a place for it. There is a proper place, a proper context, a proper occasion to actually practice it. We might say or use 1 Corinthians as an example. 1 Corinthians 13 is the love chapter, right? It's the love chapter. And people often cite that chapter to say, love hopes all things, bears all things, believes all things. Love believes all things. They use 1 Corinthians 13 to silence any, any confrontation of their sin. Right? You're supposed to love me. You're supposed to be patient with me. You're supposed to bear with me. You're supposed to believe me. So forth, right? So don't confront me. Do not judge. Love me and, and don't judge me. However, in 1 Corinthians 13, it actually says in verse, the, the misquoted verse is verse 7. But look at verse 6. Love, it says, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. It does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Which teaches us, we cannot rejoice when people are practicing wickedness and when people are preaching falsehoods, lies. We can't. That means also, in verse 7, that the all things he means here does not include all unrighteous things and does not include all lies. Correct? Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Those all things cannot include unrighteousness and lies because he showed us, told us in verse 6. I don't mean that. He means all true things in verse 7. Furthermore, the whole letter of 1 Corinthians was written, it's devoted to correcting their lies, their divisions, their falsehoods, their contentions, their false teachings, their heresies. That's what 1 Corinthians is all about. That means that the apostle never meant in chapter 13 that you cannot confront me if you see some sin in me. He never meant that. The Bible does not mean that. That's why he said, judge with righteous judgment. The righteous judgment has to be, first, correcting ourselves, knowing what's in Scripture, using the lens of Scripture instead of our blinders because of our own sin, using Scripture to be able to judge, discern, to decide what is before us at all times. That's what Jesus meant in John 7, 24. Judge with righteous judgment. That's what Scripture means all over the place 
when it speaks of us needing discernment. Hebrews 5, 11 to 14. That's what Scripture means when it says, Test all things and hold fast to that which is good. 1 Thessalonians 5, 21. That's what Scripture means when it says, Test the spirits, beloved, test the spirits to see whether they are from God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. 1 John 4, verse 1. We're supposed to do that. When we don't do that, then we will falsely accuse Christ, we'll falsely accuse God, we'll falsely accuse the messengers of God. Let's not be like that. Let's practice righteous judgment. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.